This is the case dot report. Welcome back to another episode of the Case.Report. Mohammed Hamza is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us. For our last show this year, we've got a bit of a retrospective from this year's IEM annual scientific meeting in the Sleeve Russell Hotel in Cabin. Oh, what a few days it was. It was absolutely incredible getting to see all the old faces again and getting to know some new faces after three years since our last meeting in person. Seriously, I'd be raging if I missed it. This year, TCR had a crack cadre of ace reporters on the ground, interviewing some of the wonderful speakers and delegates. And we've got a little selection of those curbside interviews for you here. Behind the mic, we had yours truly, Saf, Liam, and the newest member of our team, Amy. Right, let's get to it. So I have Prof. Sean O'Keefe with me, and he's going to tell me what's the difference between advanced care plan and advanced care directive. Yeah, what we have at the moment is advanced care planning. And that's usually uh, when a doctor often initiates this and talks to the patient about what they want and what treatment would be appropriate in certain circumstances. And it may, for example, result in the writing of a DNA or order uh, or another decision of that nature. And there's really no need for any kind of signatures from patients. It's, it's a degree informal. It's obviously an important decision, but the documentation is generally written in the notes and there may be a doctor then writing a form out depending on the, the local policy. Advanced healthcare directive is going to be a very different creature in that it will come in when the assisted decision making legislation commences and it's uh, it, it's a legally binding in terms of refusal of treatment and it may be drawn up by a patient without consulting any doctor and there's no need for a solicitor or anybody else but it will be uh, it can ask for treatment but you don't have to obey that but if the refusal of treatment is valid and applicable well then doctors and other healthcare professionals are legally bound by it so the, the directive itself is a legal document and must be respected as such and we envisage that there will be a register a searchable register maintained by the director of decision support service uh, which people can access particularly for those working in emergency medicine where they're not clear and it's not available at the time and where does where does the capacity comes in when it comes to advanced care planning well with advanced care planning capacity doesn't matter a great deal if the person is well able to express their own wishes and preferences well then you record them and you generally accede to them and even if there is concern that the patient may not have capacity their wishes and preferences are still enormously important so to a degree it, it doesn't hinge on mental capacity on the other hand the healthcare directive needs to be drawn up by an adult with capacity although it's reasonable for healthcare professionals later reading that directive to operate on the basis that a presumption that the 
person had capacity when they drew a drop. And who can make a decision uh, on patient's uh, management? It's not definitely next of kin. Well, the whole point is is, is that people who are close to the, uh, the patient haven't the legal authority to make decisions, but they remain enormously important because obviously they know the, the patient. If the patient can't speak for him or herself, then they know the patient better, they know what the patient would have wanted, they know what the patient was like. It's just important, particularly when the new legislation comes, and there will be some people who do have legal authority, that you don't get mixed up with, with the, the concept of next of kin. But by all means talk to those close to the person in respect if it's very important that they're kept in the loop as a matter of respect for the patient if for nothing else thank you very much Prof okay there you go So we're continuing our series and I'm joined now by Dr. Adrian Moody, consultant in emergency medicine in the Matter Hospital. Thank you very much for joining us on the case start report today. Thank you. Brilliant. So today you were talking a little bit about the Euroden study um, and trends with uh, trends with drugs in Ireland and in Europe. Can you tell us kind of a synopsis of your presentation today? So the Euroden is a study, um, a multi-centre study, which uh, effectively is a database of recreational drug-related presentations to the emergency department in many centres across Europe. It began in 16 centres in 10 countries and now it's it's expanded significantly outside of that. Um, it's predominantly following the acute sequelae of, of recreational drug use um, and does not include uh, self-harm as a result of, of drug use or the long-term sequelae of, of drug use. So it is the acute issues pertaining to how it affects effectively the emergency department. Absolutely. And you, you spoke a little bit in your presentation about the two centres being the Matter and Drogheda and the marked difference between the two. What challenges do we face in trying to get an understanding of the picture nationally? I think the big piece is the lack of information. Um, a lot of it stems from a lack of an integrated uh, IT system. Ultimately, it takes a lot of time to collect data and we collectively are running out of time. We do not have a lot of time to spare for a lot of these issues. If you want to take it to its simplest level, if the matter sees 60,000 patients a year and you add one second of extra um, care to that patient over a year, you've expended 10 hours. Four seconds is one week's work and so on. So anything we do, if it's performed on a large scale on a large number of people, has a significant time um, and manpower effect. Yes, completely understand. And in terms of having that data, how have we been able to use it to optimize treatment of these patients when they come to the emergency department? I guess the main piece is that we recognize that they are presenting. I think we are recognizing the drugs that are being used that cause the presentation, but I think more importantly is to appreciate that the trends in use vary with time and that new trends are always um, 
establishing themselves. So, for instance, one of my slides showed the progression uh, in terms of presentations over an eight-year and three-month period, showing that cocaine use was increasing, cannabis use was largely stagnant, um, methadone use was reducing. But when you take out your so-called classical recreational drugs, when you look at um, other drugs of use of abuse, you start to see trends that weren't there before. So GHB, which wouldn't have traditionally been a drug of abuse in Ireland, is now becoming quite prevalent, especially in the inner city Dublin. And we're seeing a lot of presentations from that, starting with two or three cases in 2014 to 30 or 40 per year last year. And in this year alone, I'm aware of at least 10, which I've seen personally myself, which implies the numbers are quite significantly higher than that. So throughout your presentation, you sort of spoke about the breakdown of drugs of abuse. And within it, you mentioned sort of how there's been a trend increasing in prescription medications and presentations. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so approximately 25% of all recreational drug-related presentations would be so-called prescription drugs. Classically, that would be benzodiazepines, your Z drugs like Zopiclone. Um, but in more recent times, other drugs, which are traditionally antidepressants, are used for as further analgesic properties um, are becoming more prevalent. So quetiapine, is, we're seeing that more often. Tramadol, we're seeing that more often. But the largest one would be pregabalin, so gabapentinoids. Um, and in one Scottish study, uh, they noted that in uh, deaths related to drug misuse, 40% of cases uh, pregabalin, which would be a gabapentinoid, was, imp was implicated in the deaths, which just implies the, the prevalence of use, but also implies the, um, the risks of its ongoing and unregulated use. And obviously in the near future, there will be adjustments with regards to how this is um, prescribed, I would expect, similar to how opiates or other similar um, drugs of concern might be um, regulated. Amazing. Very interesting. Dr. Moody, thank you very much for joining us today and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. Congratulations on taking up the new IAM presidency. I was wondering what is your vision for IAM? Thanks, Amy. I suppose one of the key things we want to do is become a faculty of emergency medicine, develop a faculty of emergency medicine. And uh, the outgoing president, Fergal Hickey, is going to do a piece of work on that uh, to move us along over the, uh, over the next few months in that direction. So that's a key deliverable. We also need to work hard as an, asso as an association in highlighting the harm that has been caused to patients by the overcrowding that we are all witnessing in our emergency departments. I'll be speaking later on this afternoon about the Simon Jones paper which says that for every patient that waits six to eight hours for an inpatient bed there's a for every 82 patients there's a death uh, and that is a very sobering uh, statistic uh, so we need 
to continue to advocate for our patients in terms of, in the, I mean, I, I see that as the key issue in terms of getting those patients that are stuck in a holding pattern in the emergency department up to the wards. We also need to support our staff that are delivering frontline care. We know that there is a significant uh, proportion of them that are finding life tough at the moment and we need to provide opportunity for them to be supported but also for them to enjoy themselves and to be surrounded by people who inspire them at conferences like today's conference and we need to have more of these uh, both academic and social events where we grow together and support each other in doing what is a really honourable job to do and an honourable job to be a part of in terms of delivering unscheduled emergency care to those vulnerable people that we see day to day in the work we do. And you mentioned so the trainees need support and need um, encouragement from seniors. What would be your top three tips for a trainee that's coming up through emergency medicine? That's a great question, Amy. I think the, the, the number one thing is to identify mentors, people who you look up to, who you enjoy uh, being around, uh, who inspire you, and go, and continue to engage with them. I, I've got mentors that I've accumulated over the, you know, since I started emergency medicine training back in the early noughties, uh, who I continue to engage with, who I come to this meeting and hang out with, and they inspire me and they bring me along and you share ideas with them, you share frustrations with them, uh, they share frustrations frustrations and ideas with you. And uh, it's not about finding solutions necessarily, it's often about being able to acknowledge what's going on. And sometimes uh, there is that light bulb moment where you go, okay, maybe that's the approach to take. Uh, so finding mentor, mentors who you get on well with is very, very important. Maintaining a positive outlook is important. It's hard if you're surrounded by people who are uh, seeing the glass half empty all the time. So surround yourself with people who find the glass to be half full. And uh, that's not to say that these people are in cuckoo land. It's just to say that they've got a positive outlook and are looking for solutions and ways to manage the uh, situation in which they find themselves in. So surrounding yourself by positive people and then set yourself opportunities, targets, carrots. So there's various ways of doing that. There's projects that you start and that you finish and you know having that sense of reward when you finish a project there's a shift where you go on to and you pick up a number of charts and you see those patients get them moved on safely feel the sense of reward associated with that you learn a new skill in your day job you acknowledge the skill that you've just acquired when you go home that night and go that's good and uh, and you know you get into the recess room and you do some of the pointer end of things and you go home at night and you look up uh, and you reflect on what you did that day and you see okay maybe the next time around I might add this to how I would approach it but you're constantly uh, of that growth mindset looking for opportunities to do what you do in the optimal way you can because at the end of the day you know that the patient will benefit. Thank you very much for your time Rob DC and best of luck with your speech later. Okay, so I've managed to corner Andy Patton here, um, who was uh, the excellent chair for the uh, FEM session today um, at IAM. Uh, Andy, um, how was the session? 
session mo you know the femme session is always going to be the best session of the conference but i know it was good it was good uh, you know sex rock and roll and the law drug, drugs as well um you know a bit of a unusual theme you could say but i think we covered it off well we had um dear jurisdiction was very entertaining um in such a grim topic but a forensic medical examiner examiner with satu who's got years and years of experience and um, gave a great talk and i think just really interesting for us to know what our patients are going to have to endure experience or what's going to happen to them when they go down to satu you know from the options that they have in terms of guards no guards storing evidence um, and the examination that they might have to undergo and the documentation involved um, you know it was, it was really interesting and informative so that you know if our patients are asking questions they're unsure we're going to be able to you know provide them that little bit more information in terms of what's involved and then um, she also recounted one of her real life experiences of uh, being involved in a NCIS um, quite similar to the TV programme but um, not quite as glamorous by the sounds of it um, and she very much enjoyed that trip so you know Deirdre was su- super speaker um, after Deirdre then we had Denise Donegan uh, Detective Sergeant Denise Donegan um, who is involved in the Protective Services group uh, group excuse me unit uh, within Garda Síochána um, so she's been involved in basically the sexual crime management unit um, which is you know it's great to see the guards have advanced a huge amount and they've got this specialised unit now looking after sexual crime and uh, she basically they take on all the complex cases um, from around the country and they've got specialists now in each of the divisions around the country as well and I suppose she was just talking to us about you know how we might be involved you know so particularly if you're a pre-hospital doc or practitioner paramedic you might end up being if you're the first person talking to the patient afterwards you know your story your recollection of what they said could actually be really important in the court so it's really important that that's documented really well and so she was also talking about you know obviously if the patient's seriously injured and we end up removing clothes to try and do it along the seams and avoid you know cutting through rips in the in the clothes avoid cutting through any blood or semen and uh, I suppose she landed the blow that you know whatever you use to cut the clothes will be required to compare to the cut so if you've got your Leatherman Raptor shears maybe don't use them for this case um, or the guards might be borrowing it for a prolonged period of time Um, so you know kind of really interesting Um, and then we had Neve Cummins who's the chair of iPern Um, so Neve was just giving us an update of uh, the huge number of projects that iPern the Irish Paramedic Emergency Research Network are doing and they're only a year and a half old and they've got loads of programs on the go so if you're interested in getting involved with any of them get in touch they're based in the University of Limerick and they've got a wide variety of um, people involved you know docs paramedics nurses um, from a few different countries and they've got great um, links with Monash University as well and she was announcing the award of the Dara Fitzpatrick or the commencement for nominations of the Dara Fitzpatrick award Um, so it's well worth looking up um, online as well after that then we had a bit of a shift more towards the law and uh, we had Maria Watson um, who's a barrister working in medical law and so Maria's got loads of experience having worked in Vincent's for five years and then in James's for five years and uh, mainly in the area of quality and safety and now she's working in medical law you know dealing with medical negligence words of course um, the whole range so she was actually talking to us about open disclosure and uh, the different laws bills acts that are in the process of um, coming into play and how you know they're still in flux still changing and I suppose the best thing to be looking at for the minute is the HSE's policy on open disclosure um, to give us some guidance as to you know how we need to go about talking to our patients in a no blame fashion um, when something goes awry or where something doesn't work out or there's a near miss um, and then to round it up we had um, Sergeant James Sixsmith who's um, sorry 
sergeant in the Special Tactics Operations Command Unit. Um, so he's got huge experience working in the ERU, the Armed Support Unit, and is now really taking on education. He's been over to the UK, has got a lot of information on from what they've been doing, and is trying to set up, you know, a governance um, package or has set it up um, for the guards so that you know they've got training, they've got governance in what they're doing, and as he said, you know, it's about protecting them um, so that if you know they are ever engaging another patient or with patients, agitated people, and um, they have the backup of knowing you know they have this governance behind them, they've done the appropriate training, they've got the appropriate qualifications, and uh, you know they're doing the best by these patients. And I suppose what he's was saying today was you know they're trying to move away from calling all these people they interact with or saying they have mental health problems and just showing maybe that they're more you know kind of there's an emo- emotional um, issue behind not necessarily mental health could be drugs could be just something very you know a recent separation a relationship issue that's causing the patient to become agitated in that particular time so the, the important thing is that they're distressed not really the diagnosis behind it like, yeah. exactly exactly you know it doesn't really matter what's underlying they just want to recognize this patient is distressed there's a high emotions at stake and then you know use that frame of mind to try and you know de-escalate the situation verbally initially if they can and then they're using less than lethal force and trying to give the person space and de-escalate them and you know they're talking about more and more they're trying to link in with medics and uh, once they've got the patient you know secured then they're trying to use sedation to to chemically restrain them and I suppose avoid the risks of positional asphyxia and the patient causing more harm to themselves so you know overall really good track um, kind of very varied some really entertaining speakers um, difficult topics um, but I think it was really useful for um, the, all the team that were there Absolutely and um, I might add excellently chaired as well thanks very much Andy Too kind thanks Mo Dr. McMillay, thank you so much for your time today. Um, we've had the announcement of the World Association of Disaster and Emergency Medicine Conference coming to Kerry in Ireland next year in May. It's obviously very exciting given the fact that it's the first conference in the last in person in the last four years. Would you mind talking me through um, what, what to be expected at the conference, please? Sure, we're delighted that the conference has taken place here in uh, Killarney between May 9th and 12th in 2023. Uh, the World Association of Disaster and Emergency Medicine has been around for 50 years now. It's the oldest disaster and emergency medicine society worldwide. It's the first time the conference has been held in Ireland and it's, it's been held here with thanks to Falcha Ireland who've been very good in our uh, sponsorship and, and promoting the um, the bidding for, for conferences in Ireland. What's going to happen is world experts are going to come here for that period of time and the focus of the conference is going to be on caring in a compassionate world and the complexity of medicine going forwards. That applies in routine emergency medicine, but also in disaster operations. We're going to have a feature of the World Health Organization Emergency Medical Team Initiative. There'll be some pre-conference courses like MIMS, HMIMS. The ATAC people are coming over from the UK to run a Farmageddon. There'll be some basic research initiatives for people who are maiden speakers at large international events. We're hoping to attract in a large number of local delegates and particularly local delegates who are submitting their own material for consideration 
consideration as it's a world congress it does attract quite a bit of um, points for the shortlisting for interviews for, for training schemes and it's got very broad themes so there will be tracks on emergency medicine disaster medicine nursing counter-terrorism civilian military interface psychosocial medicine radiology radiotherapy uh, animals in disasters humanitarian medicine uh, humanitarian initiatives worldwide and a large focus on running and maintaining non-governmental organizations so it'll be a huge range of activities we're very excited that it's gone to Killarney it's actually happening shortly after the May the 4th festival so any Star Wars fans out there will know what that means and we're hoping to run a drill in the airport which will be focused on an alien invasion so we're going to have the Star Wars characters in the exercise and then hopefully run it through the whole way to to uh, Kerry General Hospital that sounds like an absolutely fantastic way to spend a few days next May it'll be a good few days and we're hoping to people will come down early do some of the pre-congress activities meet and greet all these world experts the European Masters in Disaster Medicine has been running for nearly 20 years and quite a number of people in Ireland have graduated from that programme. So that programme is now going to have its last three years um, conferring ceremonies in Killarney. So be a large group of people coming from the UK, Europe, Australasia, the Middle East who are graduates and Italy who are graduates and we're hoping that they'll be able to bring their expertise and interest and make some new uh, alignments and forge relationships with hospitals here so we get involved in some collaborative studies and look at how do we run our hospitals in disaster settings how do we run hear from the people who were in Italy when the Bergamo bomb went off with uh, with Covid when uh, Europe was really ill prepared for a, a pandemic and obviously there'll be a pandemic focus we have some wonderful international speakers such as Dr. Mike Ryan from the, the World Health Organization, uh, Dr. Tony Hoolan, who is the Chief Medical Officer in the Department of Health in Ireland, uh, recently uh, re- resigned, and uh, many, many, many others. And there will be a couple of textbooks launched. The Dr. Or Professor Greg Seaton from Harvard's textbook on disaster medicine is going to be launched at the conference. This is the third edition. And there's another textbook on event medicine from Professor Paul Pepe in Texas and Miami, who's also going to be launching, we hope, at the conference. It's a huge international audience, chance to meet some wonderful speakers from around the world and engage and uh, find yourself a niche and find a new tribe and get involved in disaster medicine going forward. And obviously you're very passionate about disaster medicine uh, and it sounds like that was reaching long before COVID setting. How did you kind of get drawn and how did you find your tribe in disaster medicine? So I had been providing medical care at events going back to the late 90s and had witnessed some of the disasters in the 80s and 90s at uh, sports things and concerts and realised there was a need to get a better organisation structure to this. Um, I was unfortunately at home unwell when the Twin Towers collapsed so I got to witness the whole thing live on TV and I thought that's incredible what's happening here. These world disasters are becoming more frequent. I need to look into this and try and figure out how do I how do I get involved with how to get myself a little bit better trained so I did um, the European Masters program early in the 2000s and then was very lucky to get uh, a HSE funded bursary the Dr Richard Stevens scholarship and went to Harvard Medical School for two years to do a fellowship in disaster medicine and crisis leadership and from there on I've maintained myself on the faculty in Harvard I go over and back a couple of times a year and we um, coach and train people through the Beth Israel Deaconess 
Fellowship in Disaster Medicine, which is attached to Harvard Medical School. And we coach and train 15 to 20 fellows a year. So the program's been going now for 15 years. A huge number of graduates of the program, and hopefully we'll have a big reunion with those people in the in the uh, the very near future in Killarney. It's been a wonderful journey. I've been in some amazing places, got to travel the world doing this, get to look at some incredible health services, and been able to provide my own small bit of help in some of the world disasters like in Haiti and Philippines in the Middle East and uh, it's been very rewarding <laughs> it sounds as you, your passion is very clear from when you talk about it and it sounds like the conference that you're putting on for us next year is going to be a brilliant way to spend the few days in May so you said May 9th to 12th 2023 down in Kalani that's it that's thank you so much for your time I really really appreciate it So hello, we're continuing our series here today and we're joined by the TALA NCHD Nursing Sim Wars team who just won in the Sim Wars final. So first of all, congratulations everybody. Thank you. Thanks. So I might start with yourself, uh, MMA. Um, how was the experience today and how did you find it being in the final on the stage? Um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, it was very nerve-wracking, but I think we as a team held it together really well. Uh, we had a lot of fun, um, which is important and um, yeah we did we did ourselves proud <laughs> yes indeed congratulations and I might come to you Shona obviously simulation has really taken off over the past few years and there's a lot of work that goes in because the standard in these competitions is so high what sort of preparation did you do going into today um, well to be fair we had done a fair few practices and um, we have to give thanks to one of our consultants Dr uh, Victoria Meehan and uh, all the consultants in Tala had done they do loads of practices and simulation in Tala anyway but we also had extra practices and which made us work really well as a team um, so I think that's like sim is phenomenal for building teams and everyone getting practice and all the stuff we see anyway <laughs> fantastic yeah and obviously it's nerve-wracking enough doing a simulation never mind doing it in front of 200 people when you're on the stage in front of everyone how do you keep your nerve and make sure that you you do as well as you can um, I don't think we even noticed the crowd today, um, so I just I just picture them not being there. Yeah, I think I think we're just so focused on the sim itself that uh, everything else just fades away in the background. So I didn't even notice them, honestly. I think it's like real life as well. You know, when the when the big case comes in and you're the team leader or you're the airway in in recess, you do just block everything else out. So it was kind of just like being at work. <laughs> Scrubs on and all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, congratulations to you all again and enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you. Dr. Alan Watts, the nerve center behind the ASM, the glue that holds the whole conference together. How are you feeling? It's all over. Uh, I feel great. Um, it's uh, It's been a great two days. Um, and uh, uh, three, if we count the pre-conference workshops, I think that the uh, consultant ACLS went uh, really well. And I think the um, delegates who attended the uh, research and emergency medicine workshop were uh, very satisfied as well. The, uh, the track 
talks um, over the last two days uh, around the theme of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and the law, uh, I think um, also were well received, and the nursing and pre-hospital tracks uh, unfolded as, uh, as, as they usually do, um, and uh, I think the delegates enjoyed those as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was a fantastic conference uh, once again, and uh, to be honest, cannot credit Team Watts enough, you know, going around in their blue polos, making sure everything's uh, running very, very smoothly. Um, so, yeah, so tell us a bit about your team. So, um, I had a team of five. Four of them are medical students uh, at University of Limerick and uh, one intern. Um, I've, uh, I would have met them all through uh, Sim Wars. They would have all competed in Sim Wars for quite a, you know, essentially from the time that they were first year medical students, some of them having competed in every year that they were in, in medical school. So I would have gotten to know them very, very well. And they would have distinguished themselves not only um, in Sim Wars, but they would have distinguished themselves as being extremely reliable, personable, enthusiastic, interested in EM. And they're part of the they're part of the the DNA of IEM now. So, yeah. you know, we're, we're, we'll be looking forward to them joining our ranks as EM trainees. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't do it without them. Yeah. Thanks very much, Alan. You're welcome. And that is it for another year of the Case Dot Report. Thank you all once again for tuning in. A special thanks to our interviewees, Prof. Sean O'Keefe, Dr. Adrian Moody, Prof. Connor DC, Dr. Andy Patton, Dr. Mick Malloy, Dr. Alan Watts, and Drs. Emma May, Shona, and Saima of the TUH Simwars team. Get in touch and let us know what you think about anything you heard. Find us on Twitter at The Case Report to join the discussion. Subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you liked what you heard, give us a rating or review. It'll help new people find the show. Until next year, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.